Isaiah prophesied rightly about all of you hypocrites. As it's written, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. As I said last week, one of my all-time favorite church signs that I've ever seen. The church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more. Mm. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you ever spend time in scripture, you start to realize pretty quickly how strange it is that God seems to do so many ungodly things. Go looking in the strange new world of the Bible. It says God chooses not to remember our sins. One would think that hopefully the Lord would know to remember the sins of God's people. We would hope that the incarnate word would choose to spend time with more respectable persons. One would hope that the Holy One of Israel would know to follow the rules. Listen, the Pharisees and the scribes, that is the good religious folk, those who tithed, those who showed up for worship on time, those who knew their Bibles, they noticed that Jesus' disciples were eating their food with defiled hands. Now, as Eric said during the children's message, the washing of hands at the time, it wasn't about hygiene. It was about pious and sacred preparation and separation. It demonstrated who was in and who was out. At the end of the day, the, the cleaning of bronze kettles, it was about who was living properly and who wasn't. So the good religious people say, what's the deal, JC? You can't really be the Messiah if your disciples aren't following the rules. Again, the Pharisees, they've got it all together. They know their scriptures backwards and forwards. They, they always show up when the fellowship hall needs to be painted. They never let the offering plate pass over their laps without putting something in. And they want to know how Jesus, the so-called anointed one, how he could get away with being so irreligious. And Jesus says, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. You've let your religion become a stumbling block to those in the faith. All these rules, all these expectations, they don't make people holy, and they certainly don't make life any better. They only go to show that you think you're better than everybody else. And then Jesus motions for the crowds to come closer because he wants everyone to hear this bit. Listen up. It's not about what goes in that defiles us. It doesn't matter what we eat and with whom we eat. What does matter is what comes out of us. The heart is a fickle thing. Leads to all sort of evil and suffering. It's evil that comes from within. It's what's in us that defile a person. It's as if Jesus is imagining the great banquet table we call the kingdom of God. And that at this kingdom there's only place settings for those who think they're the best of the best. And then Jesus has this mic drop. He says, there is a place at the table for everyone, but your self-righteousness keeps getting in the way. Now, contrary to how we might think about it or even how we act, Christianity isn't really a religion. If anything, it is the declaration of the end of religion. Religion, it consists of all the human things we've ever done to get right with the divine. But Christianity tells us that we can't get right with God, that God is the one who has to make us get right. That we could never do this if it were up to us, but God in Christ comes to reconcile the world back to God. 
Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, the law says, do this, do this, do this, and it's never done. Grace says, believe in this, and it's finished. We, the church, we don't exist to wag our finger at every little sin and every little indiscretion. We're not here to proclaim the bad news that God will only think kindly on us after we've fixed all of our mistakes. Instead, the church exists to proclaim the good news, the very best news of all, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christianity isn't an arbitrary set of rules that we're supposed to follow. Christianity is an adventure. It's a journey in which we're always discovering the love that refuses to let us go. So where, where does that love take us? If we're serious about transforming the world, and I think we are, it's in our mission statement after all. If we are serious about transforming the world, it has to start somewhere. Now there's all sorts of sin and evil in our corporations, in our institutions, in our politics, but it's also right here right in our hearts. And it's those sins that Jesus talks about. In 1905, the Daily News in London published a piece in a newspaper titled, What's Wrong with the World? Over 100 years ago, What's Wrong with the World? And they asked for the readers of the publication to submit their responses. Write what you think is wrong with the world. Hundreds, thousands of people responded. G.K. Chesterton, he's an essayist and a theologian, he responded to the question with only two words. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. Why? Because we're so consumed with our own self-interests. Because we create communities in which some people are in and some people are out. Because we knowingly and unknowingly contribute to systems that force people to the margins on and on and on. There's something wrong with us. How can we fix it? The problem is we can't. If we could have fixed those problems, we would have done it a long time ago. We can't fix what's wrong inside of us, but there is someone who can his name is Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene. He eats with outcasts. He heals the undeserving. He preaches the good news to people who are drowning in bad news. He offers glimpses of a future that no one can yet imagine. And while some people love it, of course, there are other people who hate it. Jesus warns the crowds, warns us about not becoming obsessed with the external at the expense of the internal. Remember, this is, this is the same Messiah who says, why are you so consumed by looking at the speck in someone else's eye when you're missing the log that's in your own? This is the same Messiah who insists on dining with all the wrong people. This is the same Messiah who at some point showed up in your life, showed up in my life, and said nothing more than follow me. As a preacher, let me tell you, it is easy and sometimes it is fun to point out all the flaws and mistakes in other people. It's much harder to look in the mirror. Judgment comes first for the household of God, Scripture says. Perhaps we've forgotten that. It doesn't do us any good to lament the brokenness in the world if we are unwilling to confront the brokenness that's right here. 
Now, the Pharisees, they don't like the idea of Jesus' disciples not following the rules, and so they confront him, and Jesus rebukes their hard-heartedness, and as much as it might make us squirt with our religious smugness, it creates tension. There's a tension between what God commands us to do and how we live accordingly. It makes us ask questions like, well, what is really essential to our faith? What does it really mean to believe? How do we know what from what? Now, the church has always existed in this middle space between the already and the not yet, between the, what the strange new world of the Bible says and what it means to live accordingly to those words, or better yet, to the word. And maybe tension is, is a good thing. It allows us to wrestle with what we're being called to do. And there's a reason that we bristle over overconfidence in this life whether it's in regard to scripture or not. Total certainty, it just rubs us the wrong way. Because there's a fine line between confidence and self-righteousness. Years ago, Bishop Will Willimon, he was one of my teachers in school, now he's one of my friends, he was asked by a newspaper how he felt regarding homosexuality. He was dean of Duke Chapel at the time. This newspaper writer came up and said, Dean Willimon, how do you feel about homosexuality? He said, well, that's a complicated thing. Can we, can we go down to my office? Maybe we can talk more about it. He said, no, i got to get this to the press. I just need you to answer right now. How do you feel about homosexuality? And Will said, okay. I totally and wholeheartedly affirm everything Jesus says about homosexuality. So the newspaper writer leaves, goes, prints it, front page of the, of the Durham Chronicle the next morning in big, big, bold letters for everyone to see. Reverend Dr. Will Willimon firmly upholds everything Jesus taught about homosexuality. An uproar ensued, as you can imagine. But maybe not for the reason you would imagine. The reason people were in such an uproar about what Will had to say is that they saw that he affirmed this, so they went to their Bibles and they started looking in the Gospels, and lo and behold, you know what they discovered? Jesus ain't saying nothing about it. <laughs> what do we do? What do we do? You know, in another part of the Bible, Jesus says that if our eye should cause us to sin, and he says everybody's eye causes them to sin, we should tear them out and throw them into the never-ending fire. And, you know, looking around right now, I don't see any one-eyed members of our congregation. What are we supposed to do? In our little denominational corner of the world, we have a theological device called the quadrilateral. It's called quadrilateral because it has four parts. It was developed by a man named Albert Outler, who had read through every one of John Wesley's sermons, all of his prayers, all of his journal entries, and said that at the end of his faithful journey, it seemed like John Wesley used four different means by which he could interpret who he was in the world. And so Outler said it's kind of like a chair, because a chair has four legs. And if you're missing one of the legs, the chair doesn't work. I like to use a ladder. It's a little more provocative, you know. So he says there's four parts to the quadrilateral. There's scripture, there's tradition, there's reason, and there's experience. All of us have these four things, and we should use all these four things to discern how to be in the world today. So I'm going to use a silly example for us. Shrimp tacos. 
By show of hands, who here, who among us likes to eat shrimp tacos every once in a while? Oh, you sinners. I will pray for your forgiveness. Why? Scripture. In the Leviticus, we are prohibited from eating shellfish. No shrimp. No lobster. No crab. Lord, have mercy on us. Scripture right there in Leviticus. You can look it up. Not allowed to do it. You know what else it says? You're not allowed to wear clothes with more than one fiber. Pretty much everybody here is doing that right now too. So we take Scripture and we say, well, it says this. Okay, well, what does the tradition say? Well, the tradition of the church said from the very beginning that we are no longer bound by the, uh, bound by the dietary rules of what Scripture says. Now, some churches still affirm some of those dietary restrictions, but not all of them. So Scripture's a little wonky about shrimp tacos. Look at reason. Well, there's plenty of shrimp in the sea. It's pretty cheap. I mean, you go down to Kroger, you can get a couple pounds frozen shrimp right now for like 10 bucks. It's good stuff. And then we look at experience. I love shrimp tacos. Mmm, so good. But what do we do? What do we do when we encounter something in life where it doesn't match up with these four things? Now, here's the problem with the quadrilateral. I think it's very helpful. It can help us discern who we are to be in the world. But it's also not the best foundation in the world. Think about something. Think about anything. Our experience is entirely unique. Everyone experiences the world differently. So why should my experience of shrimp tacos be more important than your experience of shrimp tacos? Experience. I don't know if we can rely on it. Reason. Some of the most horrific things that have ever happened in the world were chalked up to good reasons. The tradition. Have you all ever looked at church history before? We've done some pretty bad stuff. Scripture. Scripture contradicts itself all the time. One of my favorite things in the world is when someone comes into my office with total certainty about Scripture. They say, hey, I read this verse right here and it says X. And I say, oh, guess what? Let's turn a couple pages and I'll show you why. Or Z. Or A, B, and C. I think the scripture, the quadrilateral is a really helpful tool. But at the end of the day, it also creates problems. Because we still keep having the same old arguments about the same old things. People get cut out of the church. People get hurt. People get burned. And then when we go home... When we think about eating shrimp tacos, we feel guilty about it because Taylor told us it's against the Bible. What are we going to do? We don't have any one-eyed congregants. We have people that like to eat shellfish. What are we going to do? The life of faith is always a journey. And it's a journey that requires humility. It requires us to be able to say, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Because it's an adventure. It's an adventure that invites us to let go of the total certainty we think we have over the strange new world of the Bible. Because the strange new world of the Bible is in fact strange. And it is always new. We call it the living word. And when we start to see our faith that way, as something that's alive, not something that's dead, not something for us to master, but something that we can serve, we start to treat people with love rather than hate. You know, despite a motto of open hearts, open minds, open doors, 
The church has put a whole lot of energy into keeping certain people out and keeping certain people in. Rather than doing the hard work of looking inward as to why we keep wanting to draw these lines in the sand in the first place. In other words, we haven't really changed a whole lot in the last 2,000 years. We still let petty squabbles get the better of us. We still drop people from our lives whenever they don't fit into the boxes of our own creation. Sometimes we show up to church on Sunday hoping to hear some good news, and we walk away only having heard bad news. There is something wrong with us. There is something wrong with us. We keep hurting ourselves. We keep hurting other people. All while we say we serve a God who is love. Now, it's really ungodly of God to keep setting a table for us. But that's exactly who God is. God is the one who prepares the banquet table called the Supper of the Lamb. There's always a spot for you and for me, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've left undone. We are invited, and we don't deserve it. So in the end, if anything in the Bible or if anything in life disagrees with Jesus, we listen to Jesus. You've heard that it was said to you, but I now say, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. I am the way and the truth and the life. Transfiguration, brilliant moment in scripture. Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, glowing. On his right is Moses, on his left is Elijah. The whole of the law, the whole of the prophets. And the voice from the cloud says, this is my son, listen to him. That's why we come to worship, to listen to Jesus, all of it. Our prayers, our silence, our sacraments, our sermons, they are all part tuning in to hear what God has to say to us. So if we want to transform the world, it can't start unless we have a revolution of the heart. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.